Well, I hope you had a good time communing with each other, and I bet you were probably really happy to come back and hear me have some quiet too, huh? Yeah. So were you waiting long for me? It seems like you must have gotten in here like way before me. You were so quiet. Uh, Well, I didn't know. I think I'm. This is being. I'm. I'm catching this from Alexis. I. I is. I. I didn't know what to say. <laughs> and, uh, it's contagious. <laughs> and it was. You know. It was totally okay. But you know. I. I do like to, be prepared and all of that. And I was just laying down after having some a light lunch, a light dinner, and Alexis and I had been talking before that. What, just how much fulfillment we've had being with all of you, and talking about various ones of you um, who, and you know, through the course of the retreat, we probably touched upon every single one of you and how much we've appreciated and seen you grow. You know, from times I've seen you in the past and uh, from the beginning of the retreat till now. And, and um, you know, that kind of beautiful right speech that as, as Dharma colleagues where we love to speak in, in that way, how uh, we appreciate different of, of our own Kalyanamita like you are to us, our spiritual friends. And just reflecting on the beauty of the Dharma that we're in, you know, there's, as a Native American um, would say, there is beauty before us. There is beauty here, right at this moment, and there is beauty behind us. And it's so we're so surrounded by the beauty of the Dharma. And as long as we keep our minds on the Dharma and the the practical ways that we've been trying to hand down to you that it is, um, we will feel that, that we're, we're surrounded really by beauty so much. Of course, we talk about suffering a lot, but it's a, it's a way of talking about it so that we really face it and we see the beauty and strength of being able to face it. So reflecting on our good fortune a lot and feeling the blessing of that when there, there isn't anything big that happened in the world, but when I look at the news, it's just so filled with darkness and chaos. And yet we're in this place where Alexis and I have the opportunity to reflect on um, the potency and the long-lived truth that many, many people in, in many traditions have been freed from, by. And we're, we're in that. You know, we're one of the... When, when the celestial being came to the Buddha and said, when he was sitting under the Bodhi tree, that there are many who have but little dust in their eyes, who can see, who are able to see through the cracks of delusion and see the truth. Well... You know, not to put a big halo on our heads, but <laughs> we're, we're some of those that we're, we're doing our best to see through 
those that kind of wall of delusion and ignorance that some of you talked about. How can we live in this world that's, that's full of that? And um, as Alexis was saying, we need each other. You know, we need the connection from each other. To Sometimes I forget and Alexis reminds me or one of you reminds me and I remind you, Alexis reminds you and you for each other. And so... So much beauty. There's really so much beauty and so much to be grateful for. So we we hear and receive and we give the timeless teachings that offer some relief from the ways of the world. And sometimes we can see it and receive it and sometimes there's a bumpy road before we do. And that's the way it is. But in time, if you look back at all the things that you've been struggling with in your life uh, so far, you see that a lot of things you've already been able to see through and um, see a different way to, to lead, lead onward. So, seeing through the cracks, some of that wisdom comes through. Um, I'm in the age group that is connected to Leonard Cohen a lot. Do some of you know of Leonard Cohen? Yeah. A Zen student, a poet, a musician, and he's really inspiring to me because he kind of um, went out of went out of connection for a while, and then all of a sudden he came back in his later age, and he's just... He's just so much more mature inside in his dharma. And uh, I really love hearing his songs because there's, there's so much depth in them. And so before I, I came today, I, I turned on one of his songs, you know, on YouTube. And I love that song, Anthem. Do you know that song? Mm-hmm. I love that song, Anthem. So... I just wanted to... I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> I, I just wanted to say a few of those words because it's so true for all of us. We've been here being with the challenges of our hearts and our minds and we wonder how can we bring some of that light through that we've seen. You know, even that little tiny light that it somehow illuminates something we've never seen before and we've got more courage. So it goes, ring the bells that still could ring. Forget your perfect offering. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. The birds, they sing at the break of day. Start again, I hear them say. Do not dwell on what has passed away or what is yet to be. Now the wars, they will be fought again. The holy dove, she will be caught again, bought and sold and bought again. But ring the bells that still can ring. 
Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. So that's what we learn when we're here. Somehow it seems like a hard wall, but it somehow, because the constant paying attention, giving our love, giving our kindness to ourselves and to those difficult places, somehow it breaks and we can see through, we can see something, or maybe we see a lot at least more than before. And it brings us to places that support us on our path, lights the path before us. Somebody asked um, to speak about the bliss of blamelessness. And I, I was thinking about talking this evening about the beauty of the precepts, the beauty of... Um, really living a life of harmlessness to ourselves and to others. And um, it, it was what I had in mind, and then there was a request about the bliss of blamelessness. So just looking that up and hearing what the Buddha said about that, saying there is a case where a disciple endowed with wisdom already asked about this bliss of blamelessness, wanted to know what the Buddha said about it. And the Buddha said it's this blamelessness, this bliss endowed with blamelessness with regard to bodily kama, means with what we do with the body. Harmlessness in what we do with the body. Blamelessness through verbal kama. Blamelessness through mental Kama, just with what we do with our body, speech, and mind. So I wanted to cover some of those aspects this evening. And, you know, a lot of times I think, well, how can I improve on whatever the Buddha said? You know, we try to take it in and give it to you in simple words, in everyday language. But there's these words that the Buddha gave on loving-kindness that sort of lays that all out in, in, in much broader terms um, that fills out the bliss of blamelessness in terms of bodily action or kama, uh, verbal uh, kama, mental kama. And that is through the, his words on loving-kindness so I'd like to point those out. And the first ones to be pointed out are having to do with um, speech um, and action, and some of them having to do with states of mind where we can harm ourselves or others. So just listen carefully and, and take this in. See if you can listen with receptivity and openness So I love it when they start out with them. Usually the suttas like this uh, start out with them. These are the words of the Buddha 
listen carefully. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path to peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. So let me just stop there. Just investigate, reflect on those various ways. He named about ten things there. And when we really look into our own hearts and see that when we are in this way ourselves, and this is our way of being in the world, we can really feel that we're held in that deep security of the bliss of blamelessness where our minds can be so calm and peaceful that when we sit or when we're quiet, we don't need to have remorse, which is good to have, or regret for anything. So able and upright, basically that means having integrity. The integration of love and wisdom That's one way of looking at integrity, of having that kind of clarity and sharpness of wisdom, and yet that softness of kindness and love. Not just for others, but not forgetting ourselves. Straightforward, yet gentle in speech, and gentle in speech, just be able, being able, that saying, to say the truth and to be able to say it gently so it can be received. And sometimes it takes a lot of courage to say the truth. Sometimes when I'm here or I have to give advice or like advice to Alexis, <laughs> like he said me a while ago, it's a little bit hard for me, but... I was told those things, so I want to hand them down to, to others. Right now I'm kind of in a, in a mentor role, but he's not very far away from <laughs> being in a complete teacher role. So having to be straightforward takes a little bit of courage and energy sometimes. And when we can do it with gentleness, then it can really be received. And we feel good about ourselves afterwards. I tell you, for me, I have to do, I, I compel myself to do a lot of pondering before I say most things. It takes a lot of energy to do that. You should see my notes sometimes. It's just a lot of things are crossed out because, oh no, there's a more refined way to say it. Oh no, there's a more truthful way to say it. Oh, that doesn't get right to the point, you know. And it's, I really do try to be careful with my speech. So most of the time people 
can trust that I'm not going to hurt them. So then when I say something, they're, they're already kind of ready that I'm, you know, I'm not going to hurt them. I'm just going to say something that I, I think may be helpful. But to give it straightly, straightforward and gentle in speech. Humble and not conceited. Humility is not humiliation. Humility is a very strong and beautiful virtue to have. When you feel that kind of um, humility that we don't know everything, we're able to just be open to whatever may come our way. Sometimes I hear the most beautiful things from children, don't you? Just out of the mouth of babes sometimes. I remember um, a story about my daughter. Uh, She's, she's, um, how old is she now? It's, she'll be, she's 45 now. And I remember when she was like four years old, and I did this recording of us at Christmas time. We were we had just come from the Philippines, me and my three children, and we were alone. And I asked all of the children, "Well, what do you want to be when you grow up?" And here I was, just struggling, you know, to know what am I going to do? How am I going to take care of these children? Who am I supposed to be? You know, and all that. And I asked each one of the the children, and I got to her, and I said, "Rona." What do you want to be in your life? And she knew right away. She, she was just no hesitation. She said, I want to be me. <laughs> and I said, well, well why? You know? <laughs> and she said, because no one else will be me. <laughs> and she said that when she was like four years old. Maybe she was five. And so, you know, that has stayed with me my, the rest of my life. Like, I want to grow into being what the authenticity of this mind-body-spirit is. That's really important to me, to be able to be authentic and, and not pretend that I'm something I'm not. So be humble and not conceited, like, you know, we can learn from, from everywhere. Contented and easily satisfied. So in our society, this is, this is not an easy one to, to take in, because we, you know, we're just looking for joy and happiness and something that's kind of bigger than that. But contentment is is peaceful. <laughs> it's quieter. And in the Buddha's teaching, it said, contentment is the greatest wealth. Contentment is the greatest wealth. When you just feel at ease with what you have, with whatever you have, and you don't have to have this state of mind of looking for something more that's better or bigger or what somebody else has just to be okay with what you have. You know, in the Buddhist tradition, tradition um, in the Abhidhamma, the um, Buddhist psychology, they have this little teaching on different 
um, personality types. There is the greedy type, and there is the aversive type, and there is the deluded type. And I'm kind of known to be the greedy type because I really like, I enjoy pleasant things. And um, so when, when there are difficulties happening in my mind, I, I'm looking for the pleasant all the time. I'm not necessarily pushing away the unpleasant. I don't push away so much, but I look for, I go towards the pleasant. So I'm sort of, you know, greedy type. But I did ask Manindra one time, what, what type am I? And he said, oh, you're very balanced. He said, you have them all. <laughs> oh, thank you. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but I know, I really know this about myself. And one time, um, Sharon Salzberg, who's coming in to teach after this, she was giving a, a talk on that, and I remember so well. She said she was somewhere in the Middle East, and um, it, it was all about you know wanting this Dharma talk. And there was some. She was in this bazaar, and somebody was saying. One of the sales people in the bazaar was saying, "I have what you need. I have what you need." Like tempting her, tempting her to come forth. And she was telling the story of how she was tempted. And I really don't remember the rest of the story. You know how what she said about her, or what her punchline was, or anything. I just remember. I have what you need. I have what you need. So actually, I turned that around and it became a mantra for me every time I would go into the store. You know, would I go into Macy's or something and I would say to myself, I have what I need. (laughs) I have what I need. (laughs) And that would keep me like contented. It would keep me in that realm of contentment instead of... I mean, it would try to do that, right? It didn't always work. Um, So that sense of, like, you do have what you need, and it's enough. It really is. I mean, we live... Whatever our financial condition is for most of us here, we're at the top of the heap compared to the rest of the world, really. So, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. Now, this is something I could really work on. And I see this all the time when this just stands out to me when I'm reading this loving-kindness thing. And I often give it as a full teaching and a Dharma talk. Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. Even in the Dharma, I mean, you, some of you who are newer to the Dharma might think that, like, Alexis and I walk in here on a cloud, and, you know, we, we just, this is what we do, and we get all this chance to give the Dharma. And another thing we were just talking about over our meal was where we came from and what we're going to do next, and, like, it's just kind of one thing after the other, and all the little things to take care of. Well... It's really wonderful that we can serve the Dharma and we're really happy about that. But it, it does take a lot of balancing. So we understand it when you say things like you offered this, this afternoon, Ben, about how to handle all the things that we get on our plate. It does take constant checking to see 
where are we imbalanced? Where could we bring a little more balance? And last year, as many of you know, I I took um, some time for a sabbatical. That was really hard to make that decision. I just felt like, you know, that I wasn't used to that. I wasn't used to taking that much time out for myself, but I really needed it. And so sometimes you really have to take a, what you think is a radical step and say, okay, I'm just going to take some time off, two days or two months or whatever in your world you can do, and it's the edge for you. To see if you can go to that edge and take a little more time for yourself than you usually would. Unburdened with duties, frugal in their ways, frugal in our ways. So exploring that, peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, this is, these are the things we are um, nurturing here. A kind of peaceful, calm mind that we don't, we don't have this kind of support in the world, so it's good that we can do this. Wisdom and skillfulness, turning the mind towards right view all the time. The skillfulness of knowing what to choose. Do we have the discernment to know this will lead to benefit, this will lead to suffering. Renouncing the path leads to suffering. Going forward on the path that leads to benefit. Not proud and demanding in nature. So, you know, arrogance is really suffering. And probably not many of us here have that quality, usually, for in the Dharma. But there might be places within us that have a place that we're better, you know, we're better than most, or we're better than some. And sometimes it's, yes, it's really good to have a sense of what our strong qualities are not to get so identified with them. So those are the, some of the, I named about ten things there that when we really practice them in ourselves, see the places within ourselves where there might be a little more energy that we can put towards it, that would be good. Just looking into the the Buddha's words on loving-kindness. You know, again, you can just Google it. Everything's there now. Um, But I will put this up on the board. And so, the precepts, we've been taking them every morning, the precepts of non-harming, undertaking the training to refrain from this and that, this and that. Um, when I do this every morning when I'm in retreat in Burma, usually the, it's, they're given by the teacher, the, our preceptor. And uh, the way he translates it for all of us, he says, I will do my very best. So it's, it's like, do the best you can. He's not saying this is a rule, a hard and fast rule, and if you, if you don't do it, then I, I won't care for you anymore. It's like do the best you can with these to refrain from harm, <coughs> not just for the sake of other beings that you will 
um, they'll be hurt or harmed, but for your own karma, for the own your the purification of your own karma, because those habit patterns to harm are so habitual. <coughs> the little things we do to we don't even know, you know, just like a mosquito or a fly comes in right away. And, and there's no blame on this because I know this is, this is something that's so deep in our, any culture is that you feel it and it's just right away. You go like that. I remember a um, talk that His, His Holiness the Dalai Lama said when somebody asked him about, you know, what about mosquitoes? There are so many mosquitoes where you live in, in uh, where you are in India and tra- travel about. And he said, they said, what do you do about it? And he said, oh, in the beginning, I, I could just see I, I would go like that, you know. But then the precepts came more deeply to him, the understanding and the practice of non-harming. And then he would just, you know, try to brush away with his hand and then blow it, blow it away. And then later... He said, sometimes I would let them land on me and just have their meal. Um, yeah, just, um, I guess if he felt like he was in a, in a place where that could happen and not get malaria or something. <laughs> and then I was struck, um, I guess it was last night when, when Alexis and I were talking and he said, oh, that dang fly or something like that. And he said, after a while, I didn't want to shoo it away because then it would go harm somebody else. And that, it was just so natural for him to say that. He wasn't trying to be, like, you know, nice or anything. <laughs> I just felt that that was, that was Alexis. That's his mind. That's how he thinks. And so, um, yeah, it it's wonderful if we can get to that place and we can't always so we do the best we can to not harm any living being and to not take something that has not been offered you know do the best we can so sometimes like in retreat I really you know with all of these you just try to be as impeccable as you can so that you sit your mind is really calmer when when you know you have this bliss of blamelessness because you don't even blame yourself. So you go into, say, a bathroom and there's um, shampoos there. Well, I wouldn't even take shampoo unless there was a sign this is offered to you, even though it, it seemed like, well, this was for all the yogis. Because to take something that's not offered would, would not be very good. Maybe somebody would see that there was less and they wanted they needed all that for their course, their three-month course or something that they were taking. Or, or for myself to just have that insensitivity to take something that isn't offered. So what I'm pointing out there is if there's any way in your world that you've been following the precepts, but how can they be more refined for you? Where, where you feel that your mind can be, I don't know, just cleaner, more purified in that way. Now here in the third precept, we're undertaking the training to refrain from any sexual activity. And tomorrow, um, 
when you go home, we're going to give you the precepts for householders that to refrain from sexual activity that will cause harm or hurt to anyone. And that means indirectly as well. You know, when you have a committed relationship and something like that will hurt uh, uh, the being that you're having a committed relationship with. So, thinking in terms of that as well, you know, how that kind of um, activity can hurt beings, even, of course, indirectly. Some of you may want to continue taking that training of a brahmacharya uh, from acting out any sexual energy because it's just a way to use that energy and keep it in your practice. And so nothing's wrong with that energy. It's just that sometimes it can be just put into your practice of meditation. I undertake the training to refrain from false speech. So I think I told you the story of when I was at retreat with Seda Upandita, my very first retreat, and somebody, people were telling about their practice in a very um, kind of exaggerated way, how they were. Did, was I here? I can't remember what retreat I told things, stories at anymore. So uh, it really struck me when he asked people to come back and say, if you didn't tell me the precise truth, then let me know that. You know, just ask for forgiveness. Beca- not because he needed it, because it's good. It's good for our hearts to do that, to ask for forgiveness. And then in the Dhamma talk that evening, he said, how can you experience the truth? How can you know the truth if you can't speak the truth? So again, it, it pointed out to me a real refinement in my speech. And I'm not perfect at it, I know, but I see the places where there's an edge for me and, and I can work at it. So, you know, during that retreat and every retreat after that with him, you had to report how long you sat and how long you walked. And, and I would report it to the minute. And I would see in my, you know, my little booklet that I would report to him. I, I walked this many hours and 17 minutes. And so it, I just, it was just because, not to impress him, but I wanted to be precise for my own mind. Because I wanted to be able to see in my own mind the truth. So to tell the truth, it, that was what was important to tell the truth, so I could really see clearly what's going on in the mind. So that, you know, that cause and effect relationship. And undertaking the training to refrain from using substances that cloud the mind and the heart. So what is that for you? You know, what... And and here, you know, it, it means alcohol and and recreational drugs. Things that, of course, we need to take our medicines and they cloud the mind, of course, but we need to take them. So we don't advise to not take them. But I saw what it was for me, what it was to take certain things and how that made the mind a little too active or a little too dull. 
So it's really important in my practice to pay attention to that. What dulls the mind? What makes it cloudy? What makes it so active that, especially in retreat and in quiet times, that I can't see clearly? So it be acts of renunciation. It might not be alcohol or drugs, but it was things like chocolate. And that's a big thing for me to give up, you know. It would be like giving that up for a certain time and seeing how clear the mind could be because it, it kind of activates the mind. People say, oh, it's a love drug. It makes you feel, you know, I don't, but it doesn't do that for me. It, the caffeine in it kind of. And so not, not taking alcohol for long periods of time. I'm not drawn to it, but when I drink it, I, I see that it doesn't do my mind good. It just it gets really foggy. But for some people, it's okay. So I can't say for each one of you, but I just have to see for myself what it is. There's no judgment on what all that is. Everyone has their own way to see for themselves. But we must see for ourselves how it is. So following the precepts and um, really taking them to heart. Sometimes I come to a time in my life when I think, I really have to clean up my act. You know, it's time to clean up my act. And I take a look at the precepts and I say, which one of these, or maybe I look over the, the ten points that I just made to you, and I'll put this on the board later, um, and see where, where can I purify a little more? Where can I develop um, a more precise and subtle way of attending to my heart and mind? So that might be for you too, you know, to to take the precepts, take refuge in your own goodness, take refuge in um, blamelessness. And when we take the precepts, that's what we're doing. We're taking refuge in in the possibility of that blamelessness. So... I'd like to end with this other poem by um, from the way it is that other that book I told you about William Stafford, and then take some time to um, we didn't we didn't give you enough time we thought or I thought to ask more questions about your practice. So we I want to open the floor up for anything more, especially around these precepts and way to live, ways to live your life in this regard. So this is a beautiful little poem by William Stafford, and it's called The Little Ways That Encourage Good Fortune. Wisdom is having things right in your life and knowing why. If you do not have things right in your life, you will be overwhelmed You might be heroic, but you will not be wise. If you have things right in your life, but you but do not know why, you are just lucky. (laughs) And you will not move in the little ways that encourage good fortune. So if you do know why, 
you're really fortunate. And we encourage you to move in that direction. So, are there any more questions that Alexis and I can help you with, support you on your path? Things that maybe you wanted to ask about the Dhamma in general? Because we won't have time tomorrow to do that. And usually we do that um, tomorrow. (coughs) Any questions about the precepts, how to handle your life connected to them? Just giving you some ideas. Yes? The, uh, The precepts... Um, you mentioned the precepts, doing them with a preceptor. And we've been doing the precepts with you leading them in this retreat. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming, however, that it's perfectly acceptable to just do them at home. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. When you first take the precepts, some, we call our preceptor the person who, I do, and, and you may have another take on this, the person who first gave me the precepts. Mm-hmm. Yeah and um, introduced me to this path. purposes 
And this, I don't know if this is an analogy from the suttas, but someone told me this once of, you know, when our mind is quite coarse, it's like putting a grain of sand in your hand, and you hardly notice it's there. And as the mind gets more refined, it's like taking that, that grain of sand and putting it in your eye, and you just know that that's not something you want to do. Um, and that takes, that's development. And so, you know, as the speech gets more refined, it's all these things become clear that the first person that suffers from any agitating quality is our own, you know, our own experience reveals that to us. And so very naturally, uh, you know, the practice of sila, of ethical conduct, grows. And there's one beautiful sutta of um, saying that um, for one who is free of remorse because of cultivation of ethical conduct, the very next quality arises naturally. Maybe contentment <coughs> arises naturally without an act of will. And for one who has contentment in the heart, happiness, I, I don't know the exact sequence, but I don't just make it up, like happiness arises naturally without an act of will. Not about trying to do it, and then the one who is happy and contented, samadhi or concentration arises. And this beautiful unfolding just from, you know, starting with something simple like the mind is not filled with remorse from speech and thoughts and, and actions from the day. Um, okay. Thank you. Yeah. I went all over the place, but that's where I ended up. Yeah, Ben. Uh, I'm curious about the other three precepts um, and just kind of their relationship to modern slash daily life. Mm-hmm. You took those for two years, so do you want to talk about it? You took more than, you took 227 precepts, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, the monastic code is 247. Do you want me to recite them? And actually, one of the things that Sada would often tell me is, watch your mind. If you watch it very carefully, you'll 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 follow all the important ones. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of more subtle ones that arose because almost all the rules, which are really interesting in the, the monks and the nuns tradition, they arose because people were misbehaving. Monks and nuns were misbehaving, so the Buddha said, okay, well, you've got to play the role here because that's not appropriate, you know, for, for your own development and for creating confidence in the lay community. Um, so the three remaining precepts, the six, seven, and eight, you know, we'd say those are, those are trainings of renunciation more than ethical, you know, so they, they're, they're the the things that would help us put a boundary around our natural just behavior that we run out to do something. Um, you know, in terms of partaking in a lot of shows and, you know, big productions and dances and these things, is not to say they're, they're bad at all, and that, you know, just when we're always watching shows, let's say it's TV, or movies, and we're constantly doing that, you can kind of get a sense of how the mind would, you know, just the result that that would, would have, and then with uh, that 
taking that precept, it just puts a, it puts a little bit of a boundary around, oh, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to watch that, you know, the implications of not having that, you know, that activity run to. The eating after the, yeah, taking solid food after 12, I was, I was really shocked at how much energy we put in around mm-hmm. eating. When I was a monk, and we, you really don't take any food after 12. Um, it was such a simplification, I loved it. And oftentimes, after retreat, and if anyone ever really explores with that precept without eating after 12, it becomes, it actually starts to feel really good to take that amount of time from just getting food and thinking about food. I, in the beginning, you're, all you're doing is thinking about food. <laughs> and once you get over that hump, you know, in terms of sitting with the discomfort and the anxiety of, I'm going to die before tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I will make it, you know. I had a lot of, you know, when they, they offer this, these uh, sugar candy, sugar, um, it's like a jaggery, condensed sugar, and it's considered somehow medicine for, you know, for the body, so it's allowable for the monks. And they offer this in the hall, and it's, the sugar's always sitting back there, and it just would create endless torture in the mind because you just want to go and eat sugar. And so you don't want to eat that stuff all the time. And so anyways, I had a few experiences where I would just be walking in the hall late at night and this, these, this jar of sugar jaggery was tormenting me. And <laughs> you know, so just experiences like that of you know, having some, some container. Um, yeah, you know, so anyways, just saying that taking a break and sometimes from... A retreat afterwards, I would feel like, yeah, I really want to follow that precept, and that lasts, you know, for two or three days, and I you know, that's, that would take it lasts for weeks. But you know, there's that energy, and of course, old habits come back. But there's 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 really powerful benefit um, from renunciation. And just one last thing I want to say: there is actually, I think, a phrase from the Bodhisattva, um, who was the Buddha to be. That's what he said, Bodhisattva, right? Yeah. Who was, so that's what he was called just before his enlightenment, still not yet fully enlightened. And he reflected on why he hadn't yet renounced certain things. And he said he realized that because he didn't understand the higher bliss of that renunciation, he was still yearning and hankering after those various things. And just through an understanding of what brings true contentment, the ease of letting go arose naturally. And then, you know, his life is very kind of purified after that. You know, and so a lot of the the little structures of practice are are there to help us bump up against just the the natural, we call them outflows, where the mind wants to get its joy from, and still not yet understanding kind of the dynamic there. So just trainings. It's so easy to see the mind kind of judge and say, did I even get to the point? <laughs> yes. yes. I like what I see. Oh, it's being recorded. Yeah. I thought I'm free to say what I want. <laughs> you are. <laughs> okay. Yes. Kamala, you talk about bliss, kind of reminded me of the evening chanting that we do. 
which talks about threefold bliss. The threefold bliss. And the deathless. So I was actually, for the meta, I was actually wishing people, may you attain the threefold bliss and mm-hmm. the deathless. And I, but I, was, I did not know, it sounded wonderful, but I did not know what the threefold uh, it, it's what I mentioned just a, a little early before I said that. No, it's the bliss of blamelessness with regards to bodily actions, with regard to actions of speech, and with regard to um, mental uh, yeah, mental karma. It's, it's said in karma ways, but it's those areas, yeah. But then it's more expanded in the ways that I told you in the, in the Metta Sutta. Yeah. The deathless is nibbana. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or nirvana. Yeah. That's that's a whole other retreat. (laughs) 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 Many retreats, maybe. The unconditioned. So, where nothing is born, nothing will die. The deathless. Yeah? I just wanted to share that um, over this retreat, the emphasis on watching the mind has really kind of enlivened for me first two of the noble truths, which kind of, oh, okay, yep, uh, truth of suffering, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But now when, when things kind of come up for me, I'm like, oh, this is the truth of suffering. Right. And then I think about watching the mind, and I think, oh, and the causes are to be understood, and it actually means something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there, you, you're, you're getting it in your own experience, yeah. The truth of suffering is to be investigated and the causes are to be understood. Yeah. Or Pardon? Or abandoned. Or abandoned. Yeah. Right. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> it's good when you you know, we're going through something really difficult and maybe it is recognized as, uh, oh, this is the, you know, suffering in the body, pain in the body, when it's, the mind is just seeing it as pain, 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 and you know, oh, this this hurts, this is suffering, and maybe there can be awareness of it and they're not so caught in it, but the aha that says, ah, this is the truth of dukkha, Dukkha Satcha. And that is a place of, that's right view. And so that's, if you, if you notice carefully, there's a kind of a settledness in the mind that's able, that's able to get there. And then also to, to be able to see the cause of suffering, which is craving, clinging, attachment. When that comes... And it's really, you know, the stickiness, the over and over again, the tightness of holding on. I mean, those are the 
visceral experiences of attachment, craving, clinging, and um, and then the mind is able to kind of settle back into awareness, just notice it, not so caught in it. And then the aha comes up, oh, this is the cause. And there's, even though all of that is going on, the mind, with that knowledge and that kind of wisdom, there's a settling of the mind. There's, some, there's something that doesn't fight it anymore. There's an ever-deepening acceptance of that. And when those two get to a certain point, then the ability to see that there is an end can come. But a lot of our practices in the first two noble truths, we see the end, yeah, you know, momentary ends, but the real, the, the ends where there is a total uprooting is where the, where the practice is headed towards more and more. so much more immediate than what my mind initially was making it out to be, like some future far-off thing. And really when we're, when we're touching into our experience and sensing the stress of, of the moment, as you were saying, as Colin was describing, we really are realizing the reality. We're realizing what the Buddha was pointing to in terms of the Four Noble Truths. And we're just continually to unfold and that becomes a more deeply experienced understanding. And so I just I love, you know, when certain teachers are really almost like uh, like empower, you know, me to empower the yogis to that this can be done and that we're doing it in skillful practice moment after moment that we're really seeing into this. And yeah, it kind of brings a sense of, yeah, this, is, this really is moment to moment we can do this. And, you know, it becomes clear as the wisdom grows what the practice and path is about and how it works. And we're understanding the lawfulness of, of dukkha, of the mind, of the wholesome, of the unwholesome. And so it's, it's a very walkable path. And we don't have to make those kinds of teachings as if there's something other than what we're immediately experiencing. You know, we are discovering those teachings as we, as we practice in the moment. Okay, it's time to close for tonight. <clears throat> so let's sit for a moment, let the words just dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.